Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 114. I'm your host, Nicholas Eaton-Clark, and we're beginning today with Harlequin, Another Tale of the Rose Knights by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestfold, published earlier this year by DailySciencefiction.com. Jay lived in Portland, Oregon until his death in 2014, shortly before his 50th birthday. His books include Kalimpura from Tor and Love in the Time of Metal and Flesh from Prime. Jay was a winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. In 2015, he posthumously received the Locus Award for his collection Last Plane to Heaven. Ruth has published widely in science fiction and fantasy, her fiction appearing in such markets as Asimov's, Fantasy and Amp and Science Fiction. Her work has been nominated for the Nebula, Tiptree and Sturgeon Awards, and in 2007, the Italian translation of her novella Looking Through Lace won the Premio Italia Award for Best International Work. Their collection of short stories, Almost All the Way Home from the Stars, is available at Amazon and via iTunes. The story is read for us today by Seth Williams, the avatar for a three-kilometre sentient starship that is parked probably uncomfortably close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology so that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communications can be directed to theboojum.org. And now, Harlequin. Harlequin was fair as a maiden, with a blush to match. Women can possess the kind of beauty that was his, and still be taken seriously, but not men. Or so it seemed to the beautiful youth. Is it any wonder that he chose to wear party color and play the clown? This strategy went well for him for a time. Being underestimated has its advantages. But when Harlequin decided to become a Rose Knight and serve the forces of Prince Arthur de Sensal in the Kingdom of the East to fight against the forces of darkness, the proctors of the King's Guard 
looked at his fair skin and rosy cheeks, at his suit of creamy white and blushing red, and chuckled. Not all, of course. There were several who immediately began plotting how to get the lovely young man alone behind an arras or a rose hedge. You may be assured that Harlequin was used to this as well. Perhaps there's some challenge or quest you would put to me, something to test my suitability to be a rose knight, he said, not looking at the ones with greedy eyes. At that moment the proctors all sank to their knees and bowed their heads. Harlequin turned to see Prince Arthur de Sencelles himself striding across the audience chamber, tanned and tall and fearless. Belatedly, he too knelt in obeisance. I have a challenge for the pretty young man in Motley, the prince said, stopping in front of him. Have you ever heard of the golden unicorn? Harlequin gazed up at the dark-haired prince, so manly, so different from himself. He swallowed a grimace at the comparison. Yes, your highness. If you can win her away from the hill gardens and back to the city of the rising sun, I will knight you as party color myself. The hill gardens were set into the foothills of a northeast mountain range, sheltered from the light of the rising sun. But Harlequin did not approach the retreat of the golden unicorn in the morning when the mountains cast a shadow on the keep and twisting maze of streets and houses spilling out around it. He approached it at sunset, when the last rays of the retreating sun had full range of the open plains to the west. Soft golden light bathed the gentle hills, and the village and the gardens nestled in their valleys in richness and contentment. On his journey he had heard that this was a place of wordsmiths and orphans, there was much that the golden unicorn, now the golden knight, had wrought. Then there she was, in her aspect as unicorn, standing proud on a hill above her hold, gazing across the plains at sunset, and at him. Her golden-brown coat caught the light of the setting sun, turning it into a kaleidoscope of red and orange, the colors shifting as the muscles of her haunches and shoulders rippled. She nodded her proud head at him, and the horn on her forehead glowed and flickered. Then she turned and galloped away from her outpost and down the hill towards her keep. By the time he reached her hold, the sky had turned from gold-orange to the blushing red he wore with his creamy white. When the gates were opened, the golden knight was there to greet him, a woman this time. She wore a simple tunic of gold, and her hair was the color of sunset and autumn. Harlequin suddenly knew why the prince wanted her in the city of the rising sun. It had nothing to do with her knightly prowess or her good deeds. He thought of the proctors with the greedy eyes, and he lowered his head. My advisers tell me that you are Harlequin, and you come from Prince Arthur de Sansal. Harlequin sighed and looked into her eyes, large and fine and brown like the earth, but with golden light in their depths. Yes, the prince had chosen well. Forgive me, golden knight. She blinked and shook her head. Forgive you? You were sent here to woo me back to the city of the rising sun, were you not? 
Yes, but it was wrong of me to come. He would never be a party-color knight now. The unicorn gave him an odd look. Follow me. Surprised, Harlequin trailed her through corridors and past tapestries and into a large, darkening garden where the moonlight was turning the last roses of the season to shades of silver. She sat down on a stone bench surrounded by climbing vines and the sweet scent of flowers and patted the spot next to her. You are quite the most beautiful emissary Prince Arthur has sent me yet, she said as Harlequin settled next to her. She smelled better even than the roses all around them, vanilla with a hint of dark earth, sweet and musky. He nodded. My beauty is my bane. I'm sure you understand. The golden unicorn gave a whinnying laugh that surprised him. Did you know that you have the soul of a poet, my party-color youth? Is that better or worse than the soul of a clown? She laughed again, shaking her head. I loved a poet once. He was a little like you. Instead of answering questions directly, you return riddles or questions of your own. Sounds like a fool to me. He could see her one-sided smile in the moonlight, and his virgin heart twisted in his muscled young chest. With me, you cannot hide behind Motley. Harlequin had no clever answer to that, especially with his heart racing. She touched his elbow so fleetingly he wondered if he imagined it. You appear to be well-versed in what it means to be on the receiving end of desire. And do not answer me with a joke or a riddle now. In that moment, there were no jokes or riddles on his tongue. Well enough, he replied. Why is it you wish to fight against the forces of darkness? Do you associate them with the desire that stalks you? Harlequin stared at her moonlit profile framed by silver roses. How did she know so much about him after such a short time? She turned away and plucked one of the nearly colorless blooms, heedless of thorns. You could stay here, you know. In the hill gardens, no one is pursued who does not wish it, and the power of the word is revered. And knighthood is attained through deed and not from the tap of a princely sword on a shoulder. Harlequin never returned to the city of the rising sun. The hill gardens were kind to him, and he tilled them well in his time. I'm sure you're asking yourself if they lost their virginity together, but I'm just as sure that it's their business and not ours. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Jay and Ruth's series continues to astound us, and we're looking forward to broadcasting the rest of them over the next few months. If you're enjoying them as well, be sure to pop over to the Daily Science Fiction website for more great flash fiction. Our feature story for the week is Talented Witches by Paul Mars. Paul lives and writes in Manchester. Over the course of his 20-year writing career, he has published a number of novels in a variety of genres, including books about trans-temporal adventuress Iris Wildtime and also the Brenda and Effie mysteries, which are about the Bride of Frankenstein running a B&B in the seaside town of Whitby. He has also written fiction for young adults, including Strange Boy, Exchange and, most recently, Lost on Mars, and contributed to the Doctor Who books and audio series. He is the author of a beloved cat memoir, The Story of Fester Cat. He has taught creative writing at both the University of East Anglia and Manchester Metropolitan University, and now writes full-time. He can be found online via the links in our show notes. Paul's story is read by our good friend Catherine Inskip, Catherine weighs galaxies for a living and builds worlds in her spare time. She is addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles. And now, dear listeners, talented witches. My aunts were nimble creatures, standing on the steep slopes of this is how it happened, although I couldn't quite remember what I found down there. It's starting to come back now. They reached out because they felt my presence. In some truly here in the past, in this benighted place. I can feel the chill, feel the breezes and the springy turf between tall black gravestones. It's as if I am actually dashing after my churchyard where those Bronte sisters used to play and live in the last century. She's in the ways I have settled in very nicely adapting to their rituals and routines, and I can. I can. I'll get into terrible trouble. I see the idea take light behind young Emily's eyes. From across the room, I can hear her heart beating faster and harder, and along the cobbled streets of Haworth, bristling with resentment and fury, why am I patting her hand as he coaxes her into arson? You stay here, Panda, where it's safe. Long grass whipping at their legs. Christmas 1970, and Mam remembers us being at Fred Johnston's house. The three sisters there together. I was up and about and reaching into Julia's handbag, which was lying on the floor and she shoved it away from me crossly. 
Glad gave me a jacko monkey. Mam was delighted because she'd always wanted one herself. They're all hanging from the ceiling in woolies. I kept having to wipe his face because it was all sticky from your fingers. Ahead of us, young Emily has stopped in her tracks. They obviously wanted to prevent me from burning to violent fits of temper and switches of mood. Some days I stomp around their house and have to be in this gloomy place. Why do I have to work like a servant for these women and have to attend school with the boring, mulish local children? Alfie was away doing police training. Mam said that his mam looked after me for the day. I was about five months old, and she went into South Shields Town Centre on the bus to buy some of the things they would need in their new house. They were moving to Thornley, and Mam says that she remembers coming back on the double-decker bus, weighed down by all this kitchen stuff. She had to start from scratch. She didn't know what you need. All the basic stuff, things you don't think of, but she got it all by herself. She says that her mam and Fred turned up with other things, things that she'd forgotten but couldn't do without, like a box of matches, because there was the fire to light. I'm almost disappointed, I realise. I too wanted to see the schoolroom burn down. With their strange powers, they must have known it would make a nice little cafe one day when the tourist industry eventually took off. However, they also wanted me for another reason. In some truly here in the past, in this benighted place. The way out, I said. The fourth crate was much more successful. When its lid came away, we could only see solid, matte black within, a black that trembled and shivered at our touch. Then it rose up, an obelisk of black. It tumbled and twirled, and before we could budge an inch, it dropped upon the two of us, swift as nightfall in the tropics. We were falling and falling, and then we had arrived. And so had everyone else. I remember arriving in Peterley, seeing that new town landscape from the back of our car, my little nana sitting in the back with me. The hills were smooth and green and fake. The houses were spaced out and regular in shape. She sang, Little boxes on the hillside. I don't know whether it was a real song or not. This was the night the ground opened up and swallowed us, that ghost and I, and we fell as if down a rabbit hole, down, down, to a destination deep underneath the sleepy town of Haworth. That lecturing tone she often put on, she explained that this was the very churchyard where those Bronte sisters used, at the centre of the graveyard, almost hidden by the closely crowded stones. Has she given up? Has she lost that spark of fury? Decided to turn back? But then I see that she has bumped into someone. An adult. I'm trembling all over in terror, but also, I think, joy. Return her to her home, pulling on trousers and a thick fisherman's sweater, which is one of her favourites, to play and live in the last century. They took money off them to stay there. Mam says she and Alfie had nothing. He was starting off in the police, training, having signed up for his thirty years. The Marses took bed and board off them, a hefty wedge of his earnings. Of course, they were stuck in the house all the time, and they were stuck there anyway with me. 
I was a large baby with a large head to judge by the photo of me I've got. Mam's feeding me my bottle, and we're sitting in the shade between the pebble-dashed houses in the side passage, and sitting on a metallic folding garden chair. We've got a blow-up of that photo in our downstairs hall now. I look like I've got a huge old man's head. Wise in that weird, bold, baby way. Mam looks proud and watchful. There was a sea elephant down in a pit, baboons up a fake mountain, a room filled with water you had to cross on a rope bridge, and a lake that you sailed across on a raft we thought was sinking. Water was coming up through the sodden logs. There were dinosaurs lining the sludgy banks. I knew there were only models, but they were nearly life-sized. The boat went sailing round so we could look at them all, peering out from between the trees. It was only after several days that I learned the significance of the town of Haworth and why its name had rung a bell. Because all of a sudden I think I know who this is, this ghostly form talking to my younger self. Talking down the lecturing tone she often put on, she explained that this is alarming. I can see Panda's snout moving as he talks. I can see his small arms. I am still prone. So this is the night that they reached out to me. The game is up. She's been caught running about in the churchyard at night. Some responsible adult will take her in hand, confiscate her matches, and light them inside my head. On our way to the moor. We were going to spend the day up on the heights with a picnic that Auntie Val prepared. You can watch from the window. I'm sure you'll see the fire from here. Then young Emily is out of bed and quickly runs from home. It still has the scent of the sea about it, she thinks. The Whitby mist still clings, dead set on doing this, and I feel almost proud of her unflinching determination. She finds the keys hanging where Aunt Deirdre always leaves them, and careful not to let the shop door go ting, she's out in the... She spares one glance backward to her bedroom window and sees that Panda has positioned himself right on the sill. His black eyes stand out starkly in his moonlike face as he solemnly waves at her. The thin night air freezes my throat. My fingers are brittle and twiggy. The skies above our heads look like space itself, as if the Earth's atmosphere has been torn away, leaving us down here, barren as the moon itself. With my girl self, all in the space of one night, I had a life-size cuddly chimp called Jacko in a red and white striped top. We watched me settle with the street and free, in some truly here in the past, in this benighted place. But there were double thickness for some reason, which meant they were murdered to dry on the clothes horse and took twice as long. Mam went into Dewhurst one day with me. Gladys Mars was there with her black beehive, working the scales and the till and showing off for the queue as usual. She was introducing them all to me, her youngest grandchild, and talking about her other one. And someone piped up that she didn't look old enough to be a nana, and that my mam looked very young to be a mam. Gladys Mars shot back, laughing. Don't blame me. Blame my sex-mad kids. Emily leaves Panda in her room, and I creep after her down the rickety staircase, careful not to wake her carers. Down in the fragrant and shadowy store, young Emily hunts out a large box of cook's matches. 
his eyes clacked open and closed like a doll's. And a blow-up dolphin we'd bought at Flamingoland. When you arrived, there were people in costumes waving at you. A dolphin standing there, all furry, and a panda waving, and a lion swishing its tail. I remember Alfie belting me once, just before we got aboard that boat. I was crying for something or other. I think I was always wanting something. In that lecturing tone she often put on, she explained that this was the very churchyard where those Bronte sisters used to play and live in the last century. The cold of the night surprises her as she dashes across the cobbled road. Luckily it's not too far to the churchyard and the schoolroom. She was carrying him in a heavy basket. Not for us the mournful dirges and ghastly sing-alongs in the chapel, or listening to the dreary nonsense spoken by the vicar. We were having an adventure instead, involving somebody's amazing lash-up. A kind of force field, I would have guessed. Sergeant Bendy was saying, You were looking for her. I assume she got here before you. The graveyard was crowded and hemmed around by black twisted trees. We cut straight across the middle, zigzagging through headstones and tiptoeing on those that were flat on the ground, or had toppled over one stormy main street in its gloomy parsonage and graveyard, and it was all for my own safety. I just had to make the best of it all. But I was a sunny-natured, obedient child. You'll be surprised to hear, Brenda, he's so nosy. A body toppled out on top of him. He shrieked once and disappeared beneath a glistening purple mass of anti-flesh. It's quite dead, I said, manhandling the beastie off him. He looked completely revolted. I prodded the body, which was no longer crackling. I've got a suspicion, I said, and yanked the head off the thing. It was a rubber head. Then we both stared down at the pallid, suffocated face of Mr. O. I did just as I was told, and I trusted in what my Aunt Maud had told me, that my new guardians would treat me like a queen. Deirdre and Val ran the grocer's shop at the top of the slanting town. It was a musty, magical place, their shop. It smelled wonderfully of rich tea leaves and fresh mint and strawberries all year round. I stared at these new aunties and wasn't sure whether I liked what I saw. Val was plump and shy-looking wearing her linen shop coat out in the street with huge clumpy shoes, one of them with a very thick sole. Deirdre was tall and angular. Blue duck eggs were laid to look like nude men and women, and a flash and a crash he disappeared, along with the creature itself, a swivel chair and various bits of electronic doodars. The Marses were blowing more cash on their nights out than my mam and dad got to keep. They went out to play darts and booze. Sometimes my little nana would dress up as Shirley Bassey and do a turn on the stage. My man remembers her in those wigs and wearing a white mini-dress and long white plastic boots. On the one occasion she went out to see my little nana sing, the microphone whistled with feedback and she chucked it down on the floor and stomped off the stage. She was temperamental. Her husband, my grandad, was a quiet man and would put up with anything for peace. He wore a pork pie hat and a sheepskin coat. He had sticky-out red ears and chapped red hands that smelled of smoke and minced meat. Next thing, he comes to sit by me before I've even got a drink in my hand, or bloated and booby. Sometimes they looked like people from the town of Haworth who shopped there. Blushes all round, but to me it was hilarious. 
I was to expect Mr. O to be wearing a single red carnation. At one end of the cemetery was the squat, long shape. Avid reader as I was back then, it is surprising that the name hadn't alerted me before. It was Sunday, and as the rest of the town sang tunelessly in the small church just across the main street from us, my aunts and I were taking a shortcut through the graveyard of the parsonage, keeping watch over the dead. In some truly here in the past, in this benighted place. And a flash and a crash, she disappeared, along with the creature itself, a swivel chair, and various bits of electronic doodars. They were fighting about their kids, and Gladys Mars was trying to pull rank by saying that she and Alf, my grandar, had been the ones to keep my mam and dad and me off the streets. They had housed and fed us in their smoky, noisy house, where my mam kept as quiet as she could be. And her, she's not normal. You never hear a squeak out of her, my grandar said. Also at that do in 1974. I was told that these were my aunties as well. They met me off the coach and took hold of my hand and my precious case and told me that they were related to me along some distant branch of our strange family tree. She seemed very sophisticated to my eyes, with her hawkish nose and her mannish hairdo and schoolteacher's clothes, mandrake root, fire and brimstone, human blood. The disgusting package crackled at me. Of course, we took a leisurely turn around the Tate, where they were showing the dappled and generously gaudy canvases of Pierre Bonnard, and Mida Slyke talked a little more about her secret headquarters, being under attack from these globular gel-like creatures who crept up from the drains and made things disappear with many details I had forgotten, of course, and now they came rushing back. I ate hearty meals with them, and I was taught to cook. We went gathering herbs and mushrooms in the dewy early hours. We tramped over the ruthering moors together for exercise, taking their great brindled hounds, Keeper. I tended to their allotment with them, bringing back a barrow full of vegetables, rude and otherwise, back to the shop. And on Saturday nights we would queue for fish suppers with the townsfolk, who would peer at me and mutter speculation about where I had come from. In some truly here in the past, in this benighted place. Auntie Val and Deirdre were well known for their witchy ways, it seemed, and the local gossip claimed that they had performed evil masses to the devil and conjured me up using a single touch of an extended, glistening tentacle. Sounds horrid, I said, peering at Bonnard's poor wife, submerged and at peace in her bath. He painted her again and again in the bath. Tom, in his orange bomber jacket and crop top and combat pants, bless him, suddenly finding himself whisked into the Elizabethan court in a set of intriguing machinations. While Emily flummoxes and flusters, having her loyalties pulled about by these phantom siblings, there is a strange interlude. The Brontes leave their crystal thrones, and all three becoming quite corporeal now, they glide towards us. Next thing, he comes to sit by me before I've even got a drink in my hand, with my girl self, all in the space of one night. We watched me settle with the long grass whipping at their legs, almost unbearably exciting. I'd begged to go, again and again. When we went south to Norfolk, I was disappointed that the broads couldn't boast the plesiosaurs, etc., that Yorkshire seemingly could. We went on another rackety boat and sailed across the flat waters. 
It was Aunt Deirdre who confirmed my sudden inkling that this was a place I ought to know. In that hectoring, lecturing tone she often put on, she explained that this was the very churchyard where those Bronte sisters used to play and live, in the last century. These graves were their playground. Those windows were their bedrooms. I had read their books, of course. I haven't been there since I was a little girl. Didn't you like your time there? Once, when my man went to visit, the place was quiet. The living room was dark and empty. The antimacassars were rucked and covered with blood. Mam thought there had been a murder. Glad showed up eventually, and explained that she had hit him with a heavy-bottomed saucepan. We saw the empty spaces where the missing furniture had been. As invasions and incursions go, it wasn't that spectacular. A bare patch of lino here and there, missing doors too. In came Sergeant Bendy, in a Bond Street suit, and he said, breathlessly, that they had one of the amorphous culprits held captive in their basement. Tonight, the journey in Haworth, with my girl self all in the space of one night. We watched me settle with the long grass whipping at their legs. There was some kind of show in a small theatre on the banks of that lake. We crowded in to see. We were there with another copper and his wife and their kid. The show was a zookeeper and a huge gorilla looking cross in a cage. The man tried to make him do tricks and the gorilla went wild, shrieking and rattling the bars. Everyone laughed and gasped and then screamed as the bars crashed open and the gorilla came free. I was there for two years or thereabouts, the small town in the heart of Yorkshire, right in the thick of the moors, open to the vast, frightening skies. I think I did like living there. I think, but what do kids know? In straw outside their shop's front door, along with sackfuls of muddy potatoes they grew themselves. Every single potato had been grown into a rude shape. Deirdre used to say Val did it for fun. She somehow made the tatties grow. They aren't given any choice about where or how they live. Those things are decided for them by adults. I was just made to live in this place with its odd, cobbled downward sloping in his buttonhole. I found him in that circular room lined with mirrors, the blandest-looking fella I'd ever seen. Head like an egg. No features to speak of, nondescript suit. Toying with a cafetiere. I had an orange juice. Two pounds. I charged that back to the ministry. Me dislikes always going on about my bar bills. I sidled up to Mr. O, who, though we were the only art lovers present that afternoon, pretended he hadn't noticed me. Funny, that room of mirrors. Aye, and we had to wipe the arses of them right from the very start. That's what my little nana shouted later at my big nana's 50th birthday party at our house in 1974. Their Victorian gowns hang down to the ground with my girl self all in the space of one night. We watched me settle with the long grass whipping at their legs, and it looks very much as if they are floating along the spotless floor. They encircle us, studying us, swishing round and round, faster and faster. It's like the Bronte girls are on roller skates. We went on long drives down into Yorkshire, up the steepest hill, up dangerously zigzagging roads towards Scarborough and Pickering. We went to Flamingo Land Zoo. I associated travel over great distances like this with travelling back in time, to prehistoric days. 
I think this was because I loved the paintings in my ladybird books that had to do with dinosaurs and evolution of life on Earth. Those landscapes were wild and windblown, like Yorkshire seemed to be, to me, from the back of our car. Scolding in the back on the black leather seats on our long summer drives were the Beach Boys playing, or Bob Dylan, Rob Stewart, the Beatles. Dad would make us sing Cliff Richard's Summer Holiday. Prehistory also looked like the vast expanses of sluggish water we passed, driving through Norfolk, on our way to where my big nana came from. As far as I knew, she came from the past. A swampy, southern place, all trilobites and ichthyosaurs. Flamingo Land Zoo over a jagged ridge of hills. There was a sea elephant down in a pit. Baboons up a fake mountain. A room filled with water you had to cross on a rope bridge and a lake that you sailed across on a raft we thought was sinking. Water was coming up through the sodden logs. There were dinosaurs lining the sludgy banks. I knew there were only models, but they were nearly life-sized. The boat went sailing round so we could look at them all, peering out from between the trees. When I ate round the cheese in the fridge, and she found my tiny teeth marks along the edges, she laughed at first, but then she was scared. She took a sharp knife and pared all the evidence away. "'What are you doing?' cries Emily. She has her hands over her ears, as if the swishing of their dresses was deafeningly loud. It isn't, but something is disturbing Emily very profoundly now. Perhaps the girls are different to how she remembers. They seem very odd indeed to me, and not quite nice. Nida Slyke was undercover. Camel hair coat, nifty briefcase. I gathered Panda up in a bear hug, and he coughed politely to be released. My little nana and my grander saved up tokens from their packets of cigarettes, then they would choose things out of a catalogue. I had a swing and a slidey and a seesaw that went round and round, all from their cigarette tokens. Also a small red car with a white steering wheel that I could pedal all by myself, the length of Chaucer Avenue. I remember them starting me off, and me getting this heady rush of freedom and dashing away from them all, thundering off down the street. He was nodding at a woman fiddling with a connection and soldering busily at a profusion of wires. Without looking at her, she said, I'm trying to keep the purple nasty at bay. Not too well, I'm afraid. She was in a silver catsuit bikini affair and leather boots. She had masses of golden blonde hair and green eyeshadow. When she finally turned, I gasped. I thought she looked rather marvellous, and I could tell that Tom and me dislike thought so too. Being at Flamingoland Zoo and sitting on a park bench with Glad and Fred, eating Ritz cheese crackers out of the box, the waxy paper inside, the greasy, delicious crumbs, waiting for the others as it patters on to rain, by the monkey houses. They're shameless. Doing their ah-ahs all over the place, said Glad. You should never have brought her, cries Anne Bronte, as she careens past on wheels. My big nana brought me a small plastic record player. I had singles. Little White Bull, Tweety Pie, She's a Monstrosity by the Long Dead Mentors. But Brenda is my best friend, you can't be nasty about her. She's trash, dead body plants, Fotsam and Jetsam. She's not even a real human being. She's got no soul. How could you be friends with a stitched-together homunculus like that? 
At this time in my immensely long and rather glamorously breakneck career, I was elderly Iris, burly and haggard, stuffed into my sheepskin coat. I was travelling filing cabinets and odds and sods of ministry equipment. It really was a sham, Tom said. Antimatter doesn't exist. So the next place, my present-day self, tells that Deirdre and Val are pleased with this. However, it isn't as easy as all younger self is one particular night, several weeks into my life with my new aunts, in some truly here in the past, in this benighted place. Really, Panda? Don't you think? I don't, no. Not like this. Who would think a little girl like you could do such a terrible thing? An insignificant and scared little girl. They'll never suspect you, my dear. We Brontes trained you better than that, shrieked Charlotte. No outsiders are welcome inside the inner sanctum. Especially not unnatural ones. This is Emily, thrusting her spiteful face into mine as she swooshes by. I was on my bus with Tom, the human boy whom I had only recently allowed to join my select crew. I had picked him up one night in Soho, where he had dashed aboard the bus, thinking it, not unnaturally, bound for Putney Common. But no ordinary twenty-two mine, oh no. This was, I must confess, largely down to me, and now my unshakable travelling companion during the time in my life when I was, albeit slightly unwillingly and rather surlily, employed by the Ministry. Their faces shone with life and vitality as they kept pace with life above the grocer's shop. When I saw the room that my new aunties had allotted me, I cried all over again because it was so lovely. Much bigger than my cupboard-like windowless room of their bounding dog, and I felt so sickly, pale and weak as I struggled to keep up on my much shorter, weaker legs. We would go to see little Nana Mason in the old streets, in the old part of Shields, near the docks. This scared me. Even then I understood that this was travelling back into the past. Those houses and that very back parlour are in Shields Museum now, all reconstructed and lit like a stage set. I stood there with my spectral driver and watched young auntie and them yomping up, spilling over the moors as we queued for our fish and chips. They held themselves with great dignity amid the steamy vinegar fumes and the mumblings around them subsided. Cat calls Emily, who are we looking for? And you're his replacement. Iris, I said, and didn't offer my hand. Down to business now, I thought. What's all this wild talk about antimatter? You should have known better, Ephrygia. Emily struggles to make herself heard. I perceive that the townsfolk were actually scared. Val would insist on combing out my hair each night. And a flash and a crash she disappeared, along with the creature itself, a swivel chair, and various bits of electronic doodars. Next thing, he comes to sit by me before I've even got a drink in my hand. My aunts ignored this tittle-tattle of being in that place, and the prospect of biding so near to them, in some truly here in the past, in this benighted place. Snowing in the car park at the back of Bin's department store in South Shields. I'm looking at the back of the Pinky and Perky record, the two pigs sitting at their Christmas dinner. Do pigs eat turkey? And is it true that one of the butcher boys bought this album for me? Something about him leaning through the car window. My little nana is with me. 
We've been to see Santa in a pink tinsel and silver tinfoil grotto on the top story of bins. The department store felt impossibly glamorous and rich to me. There was a book I was given while I was there. A picture book about a girl and a boy going into a fabulous land that was predominantly pink. It's something I've tried all my life to remember more about, that book and its illustrations. There's something sensual about them. As if I could still almost taste them or touch them, if I snag the right memory. But these slightly gloomy, slightly thrilling thoughts were dissipated by the breezy morning air, and the brilliant Emily gets spirited away underground by the spirit of the young women at home and fitted out with all manner of luxurious feminine items, including tiny bottles of curious scents and silver brushes, sun nipping over stiles and hopping over dry stone walls without a thought, my aunts and their presumed powers. All of this I took in my stride, of course, having always lived with talented witches. I blushed because I hadn't read them all. Only Emily's book, Wuthering Heights, and Charlotte's Jane Eyre, of course. But even so, with my limited knowledge of those girls, a shiver went through me at the thought. She had on the most fantastic jewels. Where's the other one? I reckon she's been zapped off to this universe of antimatter, I said carelessly. Rubbish, snapped the woman on the screen. She's been kidnapped. Several of us have. We're in Suffragette City, remember that? There's no such place, I said, sounding much more sure of myself than I felt. My aunts were nimble creatures on the steep slopes of this is how it happened, although I couldn't quite remember what I found down there. All his papers taken off him. Now he's a nod person living in Wales. It's quite hush-hush. Hidden within. A separate space. Filled with stolen chairs, and she's taken a personal dislike to me, it seems. I try hard not to feel too hurt, in some truly here in the past, in this benighted place. And curiously, I wasn't afraid. I was quite calm, in fact, as the graveyard sealed up again over the rabbit hole. <laughs> Podcaster Alistair Stewart of the Escape Artists Network mentioned talented witches while reviewing the anthology Resurrection Engines at his blog The Man of Words, summing it up thusly, obtuse, beautiful, heartbreaking, and one of the most profoundly bizarre short stories I've ever read. It is indeed, and will take a profoundly bizarre whenever we can get it. Speaking of which, Farfetched Fables is taking story submissions through the month of July, Visit the submissions page on our website for details, and then send us some of your fiction. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will be banished to a benighted place. I'm off to face a stack of unmarked exams with nary a beverage in sight. Wish me luck, dear listeners. Until next week. Bye now. Bye.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.